0: Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's
1: show. There's still use for someone like me, who's kind of a creative person, can come up with ideas, and then the AI will help implement it, do it really fast. And maybe in two years, AI will just come up with the ideas, too, and write the whole book. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows.
0: Seth Stevens-Davidowitz on AI, basketball, economics, choosing your career path, and a whole bunch more. Hey, everybody. Cardiff here. A quick word before we get started. The next two episodes, including today's, are largely about the relationship between economics and basketball. But crucially... You neither have to be a basketball enthusiast nor, frankly, do you have to be an economics enthusiast to like them. Although I might ask what you're doing here in the first place if you don't like economics, but we'll leave that aside for now. The point is that both episodes will be quite accessible to anyone who wants to listen. I can promise you that much. This show... The New Bazaar has focused on some super heavy topics throughout its existence, and so these two episodes are going to be a little bit more lighthearted and fun, which does not mean that you won't learn a ton along the way, especially from today's guest, Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Seth, how do you actually describe what you do? You're sort of an economist. You're sort of a data analyst. You're sort of a writer, but you're none of those things 100% and you're all three of those things some of the time.
1: <laughs> Is that right? Uh, that's fair to say. So I studied economics. I went to grad school in economics. Uh, when I was in grad school, I became obsessed with Google search data and all the things we could learn about people from Google search data. So I started studying that, and I wrote a book about that, Everybody Lies. And that kind of felt more like data science than economics, because uh, yeah, I didn't really talk about the economy at all. It was like Here's the porn that people search.
0: Human behavior, basically. Human behavior, yeah. But specifically, the theme was the difference between what people say they like versus what their choices reflect they actually like. Something like that. Don't economists call that revealed preferences? Yeah, so
1: I think it wasn't a coincidence that my economics background led me to that because economists are always into people are lying and not really honest. You can't trust necessarily what they say. (laughs) We're like a skeptical people. I've kept writing books since then. So, yeah, I guess I am a random combination of things. Uh About
0: similar themes, though, about you use really interesting data sets in ways others had not thought to use those data sets. And then you come up with ideas about the way people behave. Based on those data sets.
1: Exactly. Well, one of the things I learned about myself, which is probably a good lesson, is I'm completely incapable of working unless I'm interested in something. (laughs) Okay. Just incapable. (laughs) But if I'm interested in something, I'm the biggest workaholic so you get fired from
0: any other job. If yeah. you had like a normal <laughs> office <think> so. job,
1: <laughs> I, you wouldn't last. I uh, I shouldn't say this cuz I you try might want to get hired someday. I try might get want to get <laughs> once I run out of money, I think I may need a, a job, but it is a struggle for me to work on things I'm not interested in. But like this book, which was a complete passion project who makes the NBA was I didn't leave my apartment. I was a complete hermit. I was working 15 hour days, like nonstop, because I'm so obsessed. with I was so, having so much fun with the data analysis. So.
0: Introduced the theme of the book, Who Makes the NBA? Yeah. What was the idea behind so,
1: it? So the big idea was that I became obsessed with AI. I'm not the only one. Uh, yeah, like, of course. Not, a lot of people are obsessed with AI. And particularly this tool, it was called Code Interpreter. Now it's called Data Analysis by ChatGPT. And it You just talk to it and it... From
0: OpenAI, the company that makes ChatGPT, which is one of these large language model slash chatbots where you can actually interact with it, ask it questions. Sometimes the responses are accurate, sometimes not, but it's... Uncanny how the responses seem like the responses that an actual human being would give. It's like a chat, like a conversation.
1: Yeah, exactly. So ChatGPT was really cool, and I was having fun with it. I was writing poems for my girlfriend and stuff. Like you know, a lot of the things that people were using. Did you tell her that you were using
0: it to write poems? Yeah, she might not like it. She wouldn't know. She she wouldn't
1: know. I I have zero poetic (laughs) talent, so I couldn't even fake that. But uh, fair enough. But
0: you were obsessed with. I was obsessed with ChatGPT, but then
1: they released Code Interpreter, and then now called Data Analysis. And that was just insane because things that used to take me four months, data analysis, now took me like four hours, sometimes 40 minutes. It was in, like an insane revolution in how I do Explain data analysis.
0: How, though, because you actually know how to write code, which you need to do for data analysis. Code interpreter, as I understand it, if you tell it in plain language what you need, what kind of code you need, it'll write the code for you. Which saves you I don't know how much time in terms of you know the projects that you're trying to pursue. It
1: doesn't just write the code. It runs it. It runs so the it, code. It writes and runs the code. So it'll end with your chart, your new data set. The entire book is just – well, I'll get to how I got to the book. So, sure, sure, sure. So now I'm like having the time of my life since I don't really have a normal job <laughs> uh, as you – As I just
0: explained to everybody, you would suck at a normal job, but you're great at these self-driven projects.
1: I shouldn't have you as a reference if I'm applying for jobs. Uh, But yeah, so I'm obsessed with Code Interpreter, and I'm spending all day on Code Interpreter, just playing around with it. I'm like, this is wild. And I'm like, well, what does this mean? If things that used to take me four months take me four hours, like that's just a revolution in my creative process. So I had written two books before, and each one took me three years of basically full-time work. And I'm like, well, now it should take me way, way, way less time because Code Interpreter will just do all the work for me. So I kind of calculated how long I think I could write what I consider a good book in, and I came up with 30 days. So then it it became this really fun challenge. Could I write a good book in 30 days uh, using largely Code Interpreter to do all the work? And then the topic is who makes the NBA, which just made it really, really fun because I'm obsessed with basketball. So I was looking at all these questions about you know who makes the NBA about where players come from, socioeconomics of players, the value of coaches, who's undervalued in the draft, the importance shooting, of genetics, importance you know, of genetics, family, that kind of uh, thing. Yeah, sure. and and then I, you know, because I was using AI, I have art in my book. I've never had art in any previous book. Uh, I have like zero artistic talent, as I said with the the poetry. Like, if you asked me to draw a horse, I could not draw anything resembling a horse. But I have like. I, what I think is really cool art for the section on genetics. I have a piece of DNA dribbling a basketball between its legs. <laughs> uh, for because uh, you can use the AI yeah, to ask it yeah, questions just, that say using something, something like Day "Journey" or "Dolly."
0: Give me an interesting artistic image of dna dribbling a basketball and it'll spit out a bunch of options and you can choose the best one or you can keep feeding it input you can say okay but make the dna dribbling the basketball a little taller or you know make the dna dribbling a basketball inside of a basketball court or in a different setting or something like that
1: yeah yeah so uh and one of the things i learned is quantity leads to quality with art you just have to keep on doing it like uh, some of the pictures, there were 200 attempts uh, to Of get you to the, telling, of the of AI, telling the AI, this is what I want. It will give I you want. something.
0: It doesn't quite work for you. So refresh. Then you get it new, sometimes sometimes new you
1: don't even change the prompt. You're just like refresh, right. refresh, refresh, refresh. And eventually you get one that works really well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so who makes the is the book? And I'm, I'm happy with how it turned out. It's, I don't know, for some reason, like my previous books – like, including Everybody Lies got great reviews. It was like a, a huge success. I can't open that book without wanting to vomit. Like, I. Why? I, I just something about, like, I don't know, like, just like reading some of the sentences, they make me want to vomit. But, but that's bu- like
0: every writer says. No, they go book- back and they read their old stuff. Yeah, and they're no, like but- oh
1: man, I wish I could fix it. I wish it'd yeah, be but better. Maybe it's just not old enough. Maybe it'll be in the future. But <laughs> this book, I'm like looking through it. I'm really happy. I'm like wow, art. <laughs> like how cool is that? I'm. Right. Like, I'm. I'm. I'm just like it was super fun, and I. I am happy with how it turned out. Yeah. So, uh, so you've
0: got this topic: who makes the NBA? It's all about the backgrounds of the kinds of players who make the NBA, which is a really tough thing to do, and crucially. There are these massive data sets available to you, but you need a way to actually crunch the data. Traditionally, you would have had to write all this very complicated code yourself and then check it yourself and then run it yourself and so forth. Now, this AI tool exists that can essentially scrape all that data for you, write the code, run the code but crucially you do have to check the code you have to make sure it's right and for that you had to know how to code beforehand it's not like you can go into this totally cold with zero coding skills
1: that's right and you kind of learn over time what you have to check and what you don't have to check you have an intuition where the ai like where the ai is likely to mess up like merging a data set i mean this, this is a little technical but if people are interested in data like Merging a data set, you have to check 100% of the time. Like the AI just goes crazy a lot of times. And you have to both check the code and just actually look at the data set and be like, it did everything it said it was going to do. The new data set is what I want. And then a lot of the times the AI's mistakes are so obvious that yeah, you can kind of tell like, okay, this, 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 AI, make yeah, this makes no sense yeah. or this does make sense. You get, you get an intuition over time. Uh, with how it works. And, and and importantly, I didn't just use the AI to write. I think when I say I wrote a book in 30 days with AI, people just assume I said, you know, ChatGPT, write about basketball. And there's a well-known problem that ChatGPT will sometimes hallucinate, make up facts. I didn't do that at all. Uh, for me, it was doing the, the coding, the data analysis, or the art. The words uh,
0: are mostly yours. The words
1: are mine. Another problem with ChatGPT is right now, it writes the equivalent of, I would say, like a competent eighth grade essay. Sure. Uh, it's
0: very rules based. Very rules based. Writing. And, it's very grammatically sound, but not super interesting. Not, it doesn't not do, fun like and, advanced literary yeah. techniques and, and stuff.
1: And like I'd that. like to think that, you know, if I'm a professional writer, that, you know, I'm better than that. So I didn't want to just have boring formulaic writing. Sure. There's one section of my book, an appendix, where I say how I use AI. Yep. And that I let ChatGPT write because I'm like, I don't really think this has to read that beautifully who the only people who are reading this are very technical people anyway they're not looking to be entertaining they're looking for information so i kind of wrote an outline and said can you flesh this out uh, i was running hard against my deadline at that point <laughs> so i'm like you know i need I, some help here yeah, yeah. I, need, I, need, I, need I need some help, help. hitting the 30-day uh yeah 30 you day know, deadline
0: everybody's trying to work out what the potential effects of ai is going to be on the labor market And could be that there are many, many different effects, some of which may contradict each other, some of which may be consistent with each other. I'm curious to know if you extrapolated any broader lessons about the potential for AI to really affect the labor market in some unexpected ways from your own experience of using it.
1: I think it's going to have huge effects. And I felt guilty at points because like ChatGPT is an incredible copy editor. So I put the entire manuscript through ChatGPT to search for typos. And it just is great at that. Like, you know, even typos, a human would never notice you have three spaces instead of two spaces. Like, ChatGPT notices all those things. And I did feel a little, like, weird because I've worked with amazing copy editors in the past who, you know, have mastered this skill and attention to detail. This is
0: a, the, an example of a task that essentially could be automated away Yeah, like because of AI. Yeah, copy certainly. Copy editing, right?
1: Uh, so I felt uncomfortable. and. I started showing on Twitter some of my art for the book and I was really, I'm like, look at this, this it's amazing. And a bunch of artists were like, what an asshole he's- Oh, you're putting me out of a job. Yeah, you're putting me out of a job. This is
0: what's difficult to untangle though is the likely effects of AI on some jobs that it might automate away, some jobs where it might make people way more productive. And what's interesting also about trying to figure this out is that there are some very initial preliminary findings showing that AI is likely to put a floor up on what we refer to sometimes as low-skill workers, you know, roughly non-college educated workers who may lack a certain skill set. Now they have that skill set because the AI can do it and they're now on an even plane with other people. And so in that sense, it might be an inequality leveler, right? It might lead to more equality. In your case, the example, which is very specific, of course, is a little different. You're a high-skilled worker. You have a PhD in economics. And this is increasing the rate at which you can produce a book from, I don't know, two or three years to two or three months, which means that hypothetically, you might be able to write, I don't know, you know, three, four books a year if you wanted. And so it's now rapidly accelerating the productivity growth of a high-skilled worker, right? So it goes against some of those other findings. but. I don't know how much stock to put in any of the findings right now because it's so early. But what do you think?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I I kind of agree with you that nobody knows that it, it's hard to tell because also we just don't know where this is all going. It's still gro- ChatGPT has been available for a little over a year. It's so new, and all this is going to get so much better. So maybe this is a you know this period I wrote "Who Makes the MBA" is this brief period where. Like there's still use for someone like me, who's kind of a creative person, can come up with ideas, and then the AI will uh, kind of help help me do it, implement it, do it really fast. And maybe in two years, AI will just come up with the ideas too and write the whole book. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. So
0: yeah, and right now you still need your coding skills to check to check it. Yeah, but that maybe in two or three years, coding skills will be totally irrelevant. Yeah, I'm
1: like I, you know, yeah. In the end, I say this is how I use AI, and I put a caveat. This is of the. I put the date where I wrote that those tips on how to use AI, and this may all be irrelevant in six months or you know, twelve months, let alone five years. Uh, the other thing about it, AI, like okay, so this this project is the most fun I've ever had working, in part because okay, it's the MBA. Like I love basketball, like passion a project. A topic
0: you love. Yeah, a
1: topic I love. Of, of course, it's gonna be really fun, but there's a lot. There are a lot of things I don't like doing. I never like coding. I, I I always found it super boring. Debugging code uh, was never fun for me. And now AI just does that. It felt like AI was doing everything I hate about my job. And it just left the me- The laborious do... tasks were gone. Yeah. The labo- writing an appendix. Yeah. Like on the book that didn't have to be well written. That was so boring. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm done with all the MBA stuff. Now people want to know how I used AI crap. You know, I got to write out this <laughs> stuff. This isn't fun. And that AI does it for me. So it just felt like- wow, all that's left is the fun, creative stuff that I've always loved. So that was really cool. And the art thing was also wild because, you know, I think it's creative to say for a section on genetics, uh, it would be cool to have a piece of DNA playing basketball. And I have a section on what I call missing LeBrons, how there are all these countries that aren't producing basketball players, poor nutrition's hurting height, you know, other things. And I said the best potential basketball player is probably working – right now as a rice farmer in India. And I'm like, oh, it'd be cool to draw LeBron James working as a rice farmer. Mm -hmm. But again, with zero artistic talent, there would be no way to produce that. But AI produced an amazing drawing of LeBron James working as a rice farmer. So it just felt like it was unleashing this creativity that I've always had, but never been able to express. Amazing.
0: Well, now let's start talking about what's in the book, what you, with the assistance of the AI, actually came up with. You may not know this, but I am also a huge basketball fan, and you and I are both Knicks fans. Oh, sorry. Uh, (laughs) Long-suffering, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's it's improving. (laughs) It's definitely, in the last few years, gotten much better. Here's what I love about basketball. The game is so fluid that there is this kind of constant tension between the selfish or at least the self-interested part of a player and the part of the player that wants his team to also do super well. And because the game is so fluid and because the same players are on both sides, offense and defense, you see that constant tension playing out all the time in a game. That's I should say one of the many things I love about basketball, but that's a crucial one. And it's also something that you studied in the book, something known as The Secret of Basketball, which was a concept that the sports writer Bill Simmons came up with a while ago. But I've never seen anybody statistically try to figure it out until your book. So tell us what is The Secret of Basketball and what you did to actually study it.
1: Yeah, so the quote was originally from Isaiah Thomas. He told Bill Simmons that I think at a pool in Las Vegas— he said, Bill, the secret of basketball is it's not about basketball. And what he means by that is it's to get the team to work together rather than people following their yeah, – Trying to score, v- lots trying to score lots points, of points and,
0: and try to get and, great stats, you et know, cetera. Uh,
1: one of the things interesting is, is that actually true? And a lot of players have said you don't get paid for by playing defense. You don't get – they'll tell you to pass, but you get paid by, by scoring. To the best of my knowledge, nobody's actually tested is that true. Probably there are so many bloggers out there. Probably someone has, but I hadn't seen it. So I just tested, basically, you can do what's called a multivariate regression analysis for the real nerds out there. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, you can predict someone's salary based on all their stats, so how many points they score, how many rebounds they they grab, how many assists they dish out, uh, their field goal percentage, their free throw percentage, their three-point percentage, and you see that someone's salary is almost exclusively determined by how many points they score. That's like the huge predictor of someone's salary, and it's even more extreme, i got from Facebook data on how many fans every player has and you could do the same thing with Twitter or Instagram like followers on followers. Facebook
0: followers on Twitter and and, and all it's
1: that, all yeah. followers what predicts someone's followers it's how many points they score okay. like it doesn't matter their field goal percentage assists a tiny bit but not much rebounds blocks a little bit it's all a little bit but you know it's really heavily influenced by how many points they score a lot of players have been terrible for their teams Because they just take way too many shots. If you're scoring, you know, 30 points a game, but you're doing it at, you know, shooting 44 percent. That's if anything, bad for your team. team. Let me
0: stop now and explain this a little bit for some of our listeners who are more econ inclined and don't know as much about basketball. Because these are simple concepts, but they're important to explain. It sounds like it would be intuitive that if a player scores a lot of points, it's good for his team because a team is trying to score more points than the other team and so forth. But the way you're explaining it is that, like, actually, the efficiency of how that player scores points matters, too, because if a player is scoring a lot of points but takes a lot of shots, including a lot of terrible shots, instead of passing it to another player who would have a more efficient shot, that's bad for the team, Right. So you see the contradiction between a player following his incentive, his financial incentive, salary
1: and social media, which leads to endorsement deals
0: based on points, no matter how efficiently those points were scored. And even if it's bad for the team versus another player who might still score like a lot of points, but not as many as he could, because he's always looking for a teammate who has a better shot and maybe instead has a high number of assists or even a player that just grabs a lot of rebounds including a lot of offensive rebounds and passes out to somebody instead of going up for a wild shot themselves. There's other ways to help the team win that don't boost your individual number of points. But the incentive goes the other way. It is towards being selfish because your salary depends on it. So that seems like uh, a case of misaligned incentives.
1: It 100 percent is, which is why I got to the last chapter of my book where I talk about coaches and there's all kinds of evidence. I did my own study. Some other uh, professors at the University of Chicago have done a study that NBA coaches are just really, really important and more important than other sports. And I think that's because of this incentive problem that so much of the game is getting people to act against their self interest for the good of the team. And that's where a leader really can help. And, you know, I, I actually did a study. Uh, NBA.com has data on how often a player passes when they're driving to the basket in every season. And you can see what happens to the same player when they're coached by different players. So a a player leaves one team, he goes to another team. When they're
0: coached by a new coach. Yeah, you you have a
1: new coach. You are passing the ball 30% of the time. Now you're passing it 40% of the time. And you see there are certain coaches that just consistently – get players to pass the ball more so when, when they come to their team all of a sudden they're passing more or when they leave their team they're passing less uh, you see that in the data and it was the strongest correlation i could find with my measure of successful coaches so you know greg Popovich. i hate to say that now because having such a terrible <laughs> year uh, but greg Popovich. he's had
0: a bad four or five years but yeah. your point is this is about making the players you do have better yeah, rather yeah. than necessarily like winning in absolute terms. Yeah, it's exactly. How many more wins do you generate with the players yeah, you Yeah, have? with the
1: players you have. And uh, it's very clear that Spolstra on Miami Heat Eric
0: Spolstra, uh, sure. is
1: great at getting players to pass the ball. That If anything I tested, this was the only thing that seemed to predict great coaching was you just get players to pass the ball uh, more than they otherwise would which is fascinating and gets to this incentives problem that i think that's where coaches are really can have a role if you can get people to act uh in the be- interest of the team against their own uh, isn't selfish this interest. a
0: failure though of the people who have the money because they're paying players for essentially the wrong thing they should be paying more relative to what they pay now for great passers or for unselfish players, and then you would have aligned incentives. Instead, it sounds like what they're doing is that the general managers who are the people on each team who make the decisions in terms of how much money to pay players, you know which players to trade, it's, and so forth, they are paying, they're overpaying for people who score a lot of points and then putting their own coaches in a position where they have to coach these players away from their financial incentive why don't the GMs, the general managers, just change the incentives? They have the power to do that.
1: That's a great question. I don't know. I, it'd be interesting to study team by team. I'm sure there are some teams that do a better job of that, that are more aware of what's uh, really a value to, to a team. But even if the general managers fix that, the social media fans and the endorsements that come from it would still lead to major misaligned incentives. So I think... Uh, Maybe that's the answer to the question: Is that maybe
0: the general managers are responding to the popularity of the players because that does drive audience, that drives I don't know, you know, more I don't know TV dollars or something like that. I don't know. But that's, it, a, that's it, a great point. It seems so, a mistake.
1: You know, the, I think it's very clear that Kobe Bryant was uh, didn't pass as much as he should have, and uh, Phil Jackson, who who's, was a great coach, complained about. It. He said, "You can't get." Kobe to pass as much as he should, particularly in crunch time. You know, uh, Kobe Bryant had a legendarily low percentage of making last second shots because he just always take it no matter what. I think that was clearly good for Kobe because people forgot that all the shots that he missed and they remember the few that he made and he just became a legendary player in people's minds. And maybe it was good for the Lakers as well because people loved Kobe so much that even if they won fewer games because Kobe took so many shots, the fact that occasionally he'd make one of these last-second shots and kids loved it, maybe you know more people wanted to see the Lakers buy Lakers jerseys because they loved Kobe so much. So maybe that is part of the answer.
0: I want to switch now to college and feeder schools specifically, both for the average person, so we're going to make this part relatable, and for the NBA. <laughs> yeah, This is fascinating. You cited some studies – that uh, some other economists had done, essentially showing that if you take two students who are virtually identical, and they both get into the same great school, an Ivy League school or like a Stanford or something like that, like one of those top-tier schools, but one student goes to the school and the other student goes to, let's say, a public school uh, because they don't want to spend all the money to go to Stanford or to Harvard or whatever, that right after college, the kid who went to the great school does get a better job, but that eventually the advantage basically evaporates within five or ten years or something like that, that eventually your earnings are determined more by your potential to get into a great school than by the college itself. The college eventually has no (laughs) influence whatsoever on your earnings, which is quite an indictment of college, or at the very least, it shows that we've all been kind of misinterpreting something about how this process works, but it also applies in a very interesting way to basketball. Tell us how.
1: Yeah, so I did a little study. Uh, we have some objective measure of how good someone is in high school. Their recruiting rank. It's not a perfect measure. There are some weaknesses of it, uh, but we, you know, we know someone was the number one ranked recruit or the number ten ranked recruit or number fifty ranked recruit. And what you see is there are twelve schools in college basketball that produce more than twenty percent of NBA players, and you know you could. Any basketball fan will know the schools we're talking about. They're sure. Kentucky, they're Duke, they're UNC, they're UCLA. So there are these you know huge powerhouse schools. So a, a player who goes to Kentucky has you know 50x higher chance of becoming an NBA player than a player that goes to ball state or you know a, a mid-major, San Diego state. Uh, but is Kentucky kind of causing that or is it because Kentucky is just getting all the best players, all the top-ranked recruits? And what you see is the same ranked recruit, if you go to an elite school – you're more likely to be drafted. But then you look at more advanced things, how they did, did they become an all-star player? then you see basically no statistically significant advantage of going to the elite school. So I think it works basically exactly as the real world does, where it gives you that early shine. So if you're you know the fiftieth ranked recruit in the country and you have an offer from Kentucky, uh, but you're like, well, I don't know if I should go. If you go to Kentucky, I think you're way more likely to get that, you know to get drafted. But it's not going to make you a better player. It's not going to make you an all-star a Hall of Fame or whatever. It's just going to give you kind of that uh, initial shine and glean that will give you maybe your first option. But in the long term, it doesn't seem to matter as far as your overall performance. So it's interesting that they seem to play out so similarly uh, how these elite schools work, both in the real world and in basketball.
0: But it's interesting because I think it shows that in the short run, there can be some benefit of having – the signal that's sent from the place you went to, but ultimately some combination of your talent or your hard work or your, I don't know, emotional intelligence, the way you navigate the workplace or whatever, ends up winning out, right? That eventually where you end up tends to reflect these other variables and not where you went to school. There's something a little bit hopeful. There's something a little bit, I don't know, just about that almost. And similarly in the NBA, if you get there and yeah, you went to Kentucky and maybe you played well and you were surrounded by good teammates, but then you get to the NBA and within a few years, you're sort of exposed as not being as good as the person from Ball State. Well, the person from Ball State's going to get the higher salary and they're going to get, you know, they're going to have the longer career and so forth. Right.
1: Yeah. So, so things even out eventually, but it it takes a while that you do uh, face a penalty early on, I, I give the the chapters actually called what do Warren Buffett and Paul Millsap have in common? <laughs> uh, because Warren Buffett and Paul Millsap both turned down elite schools to basically go closer to home. Uh, so Warren Buffett, he started at Warren and he left to go to uh, University of Nebraska because uh, he wanted to be closer to home. They had a good library. He liked a couple of professors. Paul Millsap turned down Arizona and Louisville uh, to go to Louisiana Tech to be closer to his family. And I think there was a, a punishment early on. So Warren Buffett uh, didn't get into Harvard Business School. You're like, come on, really? Harvard? <laughs> you you not see this once in a generation talent. Well, he showed them. <laughs> yeah. And I think, uh, and Paul Millsap fell to the second round, whereas maybe if he had gone to Arizona, he would have been you a know, lottery pick. But in the long run, I think uh, Warren Buffett and Paul Millsap certainly uh, proved their worth uh, eventually. Uh, something that's great about your book is
0: that when it comes to the relationship between height And basketball and making the NBA it shows the power of uh, I guess the exponential process right so if you're six feet tall you have twice as good a chance of making the NBA as if you're 5'11 if you're 6'1 you have twice as good a chance of making the NBA as if you're just six foot so for every incremental inch it doubles your chances of making the NBA which from 6 to 6'1 like it sounds like no big deal but here's how it ends up playing out if you compare sort of The average and below average American man versus the seven-footer, okay? I'm quoting you now directly. The probability of a man of below average height, under 5'10", reaching the NBA, is one in 3.8 million. The probability of a man over seven feet tall reaching the NBA is roughly one in seven... That's extraordinary.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'm not. I, I just want to clarify. I'm not the first one who's done this calculation. I sure. think Pablo Torre at Sports Illustrated. Okay. was the first one. Although I reached out to David Epstein recently, the famous the author of, of Range, Range and, the book. Yeah, and apparently he had done the calculation uh, for Pablo Torre. So I, I learned okay. that recently. Okay. But But uh it's so been it, out there. It's then. been out okay, there. Great. I'm not the not the first one to to, okay. d- to discover this. But uh, so what, where I actually went a little bit further in this book, which I hadn't done previously. Is it actually says something very interesting about seven footers in the NBA? And a Twitter follow, a friend of mine who follows me on Twitter, uh, pointed this out. He said, "Wait, if one in seven seven footers reaches the NBA, that means we're not watching extraordinary athletes uh, almost by definition. So you think you're watching, you know, someone at the top of their field, whether it's you know MLB, NBA, NFL? You're just like they have to be so insanely good at their craft to." make it that far. And I think that's definitely true for someone who's six foot tall, let alone Muggsy Bogues, who's five foot three, you know, the level of ability they need on speed and defense and passing the ball and shooting is insane. You know, it's one in uh, hundreds of millions of of talent. But for a seven footer, you're talking about one in seven talent. It's not that impressive. And what you see in the data is that as you get taller in the NBA, you're just worse athletically on everything we can measure. So you have a lower vertical on average. So there's still obviously great (laughs) athletes who are seven feet tall, but on average, you know, the taller you get, the lower your vertical leap. Uh, On average, the taller you get, the slower you are. On average, the taller you get, the worse you shoot free throws. On average, I found this in the data, the taller you get, the worse you are in clutch moments, the more likely you are to choke. Uh, And I think that's all because there's just not that much selection pressure uh, that not as a, much competition. Not as much there's competition. There just aren't that so, many seven footers yeah, a, and it's really helpful in basketball if you're seven feet yeah, tall. Yeah, so a six footer is competing against hundreds of millions of other people for those NBA spots. A seven footer is competing against dozens of other people for their NBA spots. It doesn't require the same level of performance. Uh, there's another secret of basketball that's kind of been leaked over by some players is that a large percent of basketball players don't really love basketball. And I think we've kind of learned that's, much more likely among seven-footers. And again, how can you reach the top of a field without loving it? Well, when there's so little competition, it becomes more possible. So, you know, once you see the chart of how much height helps you make the NBA, it'd almost be impossible for taller people not to be worse on everything else on average, uh, whether it's passion for the game, work ethic, speed, vertical, jump. One of the things that's interesting, when I first showed the chart, of the relationship between height and vertical leap on Twitter, a lot of people assume that taller people, there'd be something biological, physiological that would lead to that relationship. And you know, I asked some people, so since all these people were getting involved in it, I'm like, okay, you know, I'll, you play devil's advocate, can anybody find a study showing that height makes it harder to get off the ground. To jump higher. To jump higher, or makes you less coordinated, makes you slower, makes you a worse athlete on any dimension. And nobody could find any study that found this. Most studies have found no relationship. A few studies have found that height is positively correlated with a vertical leap. And I think our idea that height physiologically makes people worse athletes all comes from this selection bias from the NBA. Just a lack of competition for the seven-footers. Well, because when do we see seven-footers try to be good athletes? Right. We see it when we're watching basketball. And we notice that... Look, the seven-footers are way less coordinated, way worse shooters, way less athletic than the six-footers on the court. That must be something about biology. We don't just see it. It's measured, as you point it's out. It's measured, book, yeah. yeah. So we see it. It's, Lower it's vertical correct. leap, all that stuff. So, yeah. But we kind of assume that the population at large, that's true. Well, no, the reason that the seven-footers in the NBA are worse athletes than the six-footers in the NBA is just because they, have so, they don't need to be as good athletes. There's this selection bias. Uh, So it's not anything inherent in biology. Yeah, here's a great statistic, and I'm quoting you again.
0: The average seven foot or above NBA player bench press is less than the average six foot or below NBA player. Shorter NBA players are frequently stronger than taller NBA players. I think a lot of us sort of, we automatically think of like the all-time greats and we think of Shaquille O'Neal, super strong seven-footer. Joel Embiid, super strong 7'2", I think, right? Yeah. Um, but actually, there have also been a lot of very tall NBA players, players who made the NBA who were incredibly skinny. Porzingis or something. Porzingis, but even going going back to the 90s, people like Sean Bradley or Manute Bull who yeah, were yeah. very skinny and probably couldn't bench press very much. And you have these incredibly incredibly like just super fit athletes who are some combination of jacked and can run fast and can do all these different things because they have to because they're competing with tens of millions of people instead of tens of tens of people you know
1: yeah again once you say it it kind of becomes obvious but it is it is striking just how much better you have to be if you're six foot tall (laughs) to make the nba than if you're seven foot tall it's just a totally different ball game it's
0: yeah uh, and now adjusting for height right (laughs) let's talk about genetics for a minute here's a striking statistic if you have a twin brother in the NBA one in two chance that you are also in the NBA that's amazing identical identical twin brother so if you have two identical twin brothers one of them makes the NBA 50% chance the other one is also going to be in the NBA
1: Uh, The NBA is just so genetic, and it's seen in the prevalence of identical twins. So I talk about in the book just how many – there have been uh, 11 pairs of twins in the NBA. Either 10 or probably all 11 have been identical rather than fraternal twins, Mm -hmm. Uh, which just – if people know genetics, that's kind of a dead giveaway that something's very genetic because identical twins share 100% of their genes – So basically if one identical twin just happens to get a really good draw of the things that matter for making the NBA, height and vertical leap and speed, then the other identical twin is going to get that same draw. So the NBA is just dominated by identical twins. I knew this because I went to Stanford, and we always suck – for a while. And then we get a new pair of identical twins that makes us good. Uh, So first it was Jason and Jaron Collins, and then it was uh, Brooke and Robin Lopez. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was two pairs of identical twins that kind of saved the Stanford program. Uh, And yeah, it's just, it is amazing the prevalence of identical twins and just far higher than other sports. So you know, I go through a whole bunch of other sports that no other sport you see this level of dominance by identical twins. You don't see it in baseball. You don't see it in football. You don't see it in a bunch of Olympic sports, boxing or swimming or tennis or gymnastics. Basketball is just, you know, as far as we can tell about as genetic a a pursuit as there is, in part because height is so genetic. And and as mentioned, height is so valuable for making the NBA.
0: But other traits that are also hugely dependent on genetics also have a very strong correlation to success in basketball. And I'll just list them so we don't have to go through them, uh, you know, at length here. But arm length, hand size, vertical leap are all more than 70% genetic. And... Crucially, they're all vital things that you need to have to be a really great NBA player. And you have a sentence here that's sort of heartbreaking for, I think, (laughs) a lot of young boys who might dream of making the NBA. You write, quote, basketball feels like a sport that was designed in a lab to maximize its reliance on things that can only be achieved through the right DNA.
1: A lot of traits that, that are useful in basketball uh, aren't talked about as much, so we know height is very valuable, but hand size is really, really valuable. The ability to palm a basketball, and a lot of the legendary basketball players, Michael Jordan, uh, Giannis uh, Shaq, uh, have huge hands, even bigger hands than you'd expect due to their height. Arm length, vertical leap, so many of these things rely heavily on DNA. Uh, yeah. And it is, it, I, I kind of end in the last chapter of the book. I kind of imagine this hypothetical future where a kid is told their genetic potential in various pursuits, which we may get to eventually as studies of what genes, particular genes, contribute to different traits are getting better and better. Uh, We may learn more about your genetic potential, and then you wouldn't waste your time trying to be a basketball player if you don't have the DNA. (laughs) Or uh, on the flip side, maybe we could identify the person in India that has great we we'll get better at DNA. finding the
0: places that have been underexplored in the past. Yeah. Whether there's the capacity to be a great basketball yeah. player is there, but they haven't been exposed to the sport enough yeah. or, you know, they haven't been able to take advantage of their inborn traits.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, it sounds sad if you find out that your genes, you know, make uh, making the NBA impossible, but maybe you'd also find, oh, I actually secretly have potential talent as a violinist uh, that, you know, in in my DNA, and I can maybe practice that and have some success. So it- Your advice for
0: finding your right career path is really interesting at the very end. It's not to lament that, like, your genetic traits go against the likelihood that you'll be a basketball player. And you're very candid about this in terms of, like, your own childhood dreams. You know, you (laughs) wanted to be a basketball player, but you grew to be 5'9", 5'10", and that's just working against you well like i would say severely should, and you said it's actually liberating to realize this
1: uh, explain that i beat myself up a lot on the things that i didn't accomplish uh you know i, I i've long ago you know a few weeks ago came to terms with my in- inability <laughs> to make, the, make NBA. the nba <laughs> <laughs> no i i came i i'm being completely honest the hardest conversation i had in my life i swear i'm i swear on this was uh my mom sat me down and had to tell me I wasn't going to be a professional athlete because she's just like, you know, there there was a period in my life when I was, you know, in kindergarten, first grade and everyone asked, what are you going to be when you grow up? And it was always a professional athlete, maybe a basketball player. I, I would have settled for a baseball player, but that was always my answer because I was so obsessed with sports and, uh, you know, and everyone's like, oh, that, that," you know, smile. That's kind of a cute answer. And then I was reaching an age – I hesitate to admit the age <laughs> – where I was where I was still giving that answer and it was starting to get a little embarrassing because I think the rest of the world realized uh, before I did that I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, that I didn't have the right DNA to be a professional athlete. But I think it can be liberating if you have a tendency to beat yourself up to realize – you know, to look at the data and realize, okay, you know, I was never going to be, you know, obviously I was never going to be a a basketball player. That was not, that's not because of anything I did wrong. That was just forces well out of my control. And, you know, a lot of these, I think, elite accomplishments have a similar flavor to them that I think, you know, there's a very interesting talk by Elaine de Bouton. And he said, the problem with the modern world is we tell people that everything is possible. And then a lot of us beat ourselves up for the things that we didn't accomplish. Like I grew up a 30-minute drive from Mark Zuckerberg, uh, a Jewish male in the tri-state area, a few years apart. It seems very possible that I should have been Mark Zuckerberg. But I think if you actually look at the odds, even among Jewish males in the tri-state area, even that was an extreme long shot. And there were probably advantages that Zuckerberg had at a very young age that made him much more likely to – Become one of the richest people on the planet that I didn't have, because in the in the modern world everything seems possible. A lot of us beat ourselves up about the things that we didn't achieve. So there's can be some sometimes uh, it can be liberating to look at the data, seeing just how unlikely uh, some of these outcomes were.
0: And don't beat yourself up over it. In other words, yeah, I, I have some ambivalence towards what you're saying here, because on the one hand, I like the idea that you shouldn't have some lifelong guilt. For something that you didn't achieve when it was super unlikely that you were going to get there anyways. And when, frankly, a lot of other people had, I think, unfair advantages, right? Just by virtue of their genetic traits. Their hands. (laughs) Exactly. On the other hand, that particular delusion, if that's the right word, that anything is possible, also probably leads a lot of people to take some incredible swings Most of which will be huge whiffs, but some of which are going to be home runs, to use a totally different sports metaphor, to achieve some extraordinary things that do benefit the rest of society, founding incredible companies and so forth. And they might not have tried in the first place if they didn't have that belief, which, again— might be largely delusional for most people, and yet it could be, in a way, one of those useful delusions that serve a purpose. So, yeah, so I'm I'm sort of mixed on what you just said, but in general, I like the idea that if you want to be happier in your life, you should almost look for what your own unfair advantage is and take advantage of that and capitalize on that, which is the advice you give in your
1: book. Yeah, so I say that uh, I've always been very good at math, so... uh... You know, my grandfather was a house painter. He has a third grade education, survived the Holocaust. And he was just incredibly good at math. Uh, other grandparents similarly. And my brother is a professor of computer science, basically math at Cornell. Like, there's just a lot of math. Uh, we're like the curries of, of math, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, but also, my dad's a journalism professor. So I got a lot of coaching on writing uh, from a very young age. And even up to this book, um, my dad's also a big basketball fan, and he helped me a lot uh, with this 30-day project. So like a
0: nice combination of some nature in there, like whatever the gene is that helps with math, but also the environment in which you were raised that contributed, at least in terms of the writing and the love of basketball and so forth, and probably also with the math as well, right? Like that's also almost certainly a combination of hard work and talent, right? Writing
1: this book felt like uh, my uh, best imitation of Steph Curry, which (laughs) I don't think is going to lead to the same glory or salary or or money, but the combination of following your nature and nurture, I felt like I did that in, in this book.
0: I want to close with a conversation about what we might call market inefficiencies, just to bring the connection between basketball and economics or finance or whatever um, back to the center of the chat. So you have a few chapters where you essentially describe what you would do if you were in charge of like choosing players based on the data because there are these market inefficiencies. And I want to go, sort of go through some of them. One is people don't appreciate the importance of hand size. We talked about that a little bit, but actually this is shown in the data that we don't prioritize that enough when choosing our players,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. So if you look at – this is in the draft. If you look at kind of uh, where people are drafted and how they eventually perform, you can have a prediction how good should they be, You know, how good should the average number one pick, number 10 pick, number 40 pick do, and then who overperforms or underperforms using whatever advanced statistic you like. And you see that hand size is a big predictor of over- or underperformance. I think it's something striking, like 17 of 19 players who had hands below 8 inches underperformed their draft pick. Mm-hmm. Like just, It seems really hard if your hands are very, very small to be a good NBA player. And it seems like teams did not quite realize uh, just how important hand size is. I, th- I think every team would tell you that hand size is important. They don't realize just quite how important it is.
0: Yeah. Also, this is really interesting. The standing vertical leap, which is different from the way the vertical leap is normally measured where you get a small running start and then you jump as high as you can and you see how high. actually, the standing vertical, which is when you have no running head start, it's just from from standing still, how high can you leap basically? that turns out to be more important than the running vertical leap, which is the thing that everybody you know gasps over like, oh my God, you know so and so had a forty four inch vertical leap but the standing vertical is more important
1: yeah it actually makes sense i actually also predicted block shots based on standing uh leap versus running leap not not a huge head start but a, a few steps of head start and the standing leap is the big predictor not the running leap i think you know there are so many famous block shots with a big running leap so you think of lebron james block of Andre Iguodala in the uh, the NBA Finals. Yeah, this is the
0: 2016 NBA Finals. Yeah, he finals. runs. Famous play. In he game runs seven, sure. all the
1: way across the, you know, the, the length of the court and then leaps to this insane level and blocks this shot. And it's so impressive to people. I think we forget that most block shots aren't quite like that. Most block shots, you don't have this running head start. It's more a standing leap. And I think rebounds have a similar flavor that the average rebound... Uh, you don't usually get a huge head start. You're kind of boxed out, you know, and then it's how high can you jump yeah, while it's standing. That's where your
0: position, but once you've got your position, it's yeah. how
1: high can you reach without so, a running start? So I sure. think teams have undervalued. I I don't just think the data shows that teams have historically undervalued the great standing leapers compared to the the great vertical leap. Uh, the vertical leap just captures people's imagination. It's so exciting, you know, and that's how you win the dunk contest where you do get a a great vertical leap, but, you know, so much of the game of the NBA do- doesn't come with a huge head start. So, yeah, uh, that was really interesting in the data.
0: Last topic that also is related to what we might call market inefficiencies here, and it has to do with finding, recruiting, discovering amazing players abroad outside of the U.S., The sport obviously has been internationalizing quite a bit in the last, you know, couple of decades. But in particular now, you can make the argument that maybe even the best four players in the league are foreign-born players. You know, Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Luka Doncic. You know, amazing players. Maybe, like I said, the top four or four of the top six, whatever, are all foreign-born players. And so you do this kind of analysis of... What are the factors that are likeliest to correlate with players from abroad being from certain countries that have a kind of disproportionate number of players who end up coming to the U.S. and making it in the NBA? There's three of them. Two are not surprising. So the average height of a country. okay, a little bit of a yawn, obvious. Right. Second is interest in basketball, which, again, sort of is is understood, right? Like we'd think that if a country loves basketball, they're going to produce a lot of basketball players, better chance of making it in the NBA. The last one is really interesting and kind of counterintuitive. And I want you to take us through it. It's if the country has a lot of interest in another sport for which height also is a big deal.
1: Yeah. And in particular, it's volleyball. It's
0: volleyball. It's so volleyball. if the country is super interested <laughs> yeah. in volleyball, less of a chance of that
1: they'll a, that they'll send players a, to the and NBA. it shows up particularly in uh, a reduction in forwards because if you look at the body type of uh, athletes in different sports the only sport that utilizes height to anywhere close to the degree that basketball utilizes it is volleyball mm-hmm. and the average volleyball player basically has the same body type as a small forward so you know 6'8 six, 6'9 six, something like that yeah. uh, not crazy huge not crazy bulky. And I didn't know just how popular volleyball can be around the world. So if you look at a country like Iran, volleyball is five times more popular than basketball. And there are many countries uh, where volleyball is more popular than basketball, whether it's Brazil or Russia, Bulgaria, Poland. Uh, Poland. Here, yep. Yeah. So there are lots of countries where uh, I measured it using Google trends that volleyball you know is more popular than basketball. And what this means is that in these countries, If you grow to be 6'8", if you grow to be 6'9", the obvious thing to do if you're born in America or a country where basketball is more popular than volleyball is to start playing basketball. So, you know, Carmelo Anthony and LeBron James, when they grew to be such enormous men, nobody's like, have you thought of trying volleyball? Uh, That would be laughable in the United States. But if you grow to be LeBron James height in Bulgaria, the first thought is, have you thought of trying volleyball?
0: But also it seems like maybe that's an untapped source of potential talent for the NBA because there are examples of players who've been great in the NBA who started by playing other sports and didn't convert to basketball until their teens. The most famous example is Hakeem Olajuwon from the 90s. But something similar applies to, I think, Joel Embiid. I think Giannis Antetokounmpo started kind of late. So it is possible. So I'm wondering if NBA scouts... Wouldn't be well served to go to some of these countries, find really young sort of volleyball talent there, age, I don't know, 12, 13 or whatever, and sort of say, hey, if anybody's interested in playing basketball, like here's a, I don't know, some kind of a teen league in those schools
1: that they can. Yeah, and you know, show the data on the and salaries. And show the data on
0: how much money can be Although made may, there. And you know, you know.
1: I don't know. It's a part of the reason that the six foot. Eight people in Bulgaria or Brazil play volleyball is because they're passionate about it. Because they love and it. They love right, it, yeah. and they I'm don't love basketball. I'm taking a very cynical commercial approach yeah. to this kind of thing. I'm <laughs> just I'm
0: looking for the places yeah. where there's potential basketball I think, talent. Yeah, I think uh, it,
1: underexplored. There definitely is unexplored basketball talent in some of these volleyball mad countries. It's a finding. Once you say it, it's kind of obvious. It would be surprising if volleyball popularity didn't negatively impact. Basketball talent But I think it's very clear In the data
0: Last question Did working on this book And this analysis project End up changing Your relationship To basketball In any meaningful way Uh, Did it demystify Some things Did it maybe enhance Your fascination with it
1: uh I mean it was hard, it's hard to enhance it because it's so high to begin with. Uh, it's kind of infinity plus. <laughs> infinity, <laughs> infinity, infinity plus sure. one. <laughs> uh it's it's a good question. I do think there is a negative effect where the effect of height it does feel unfair to some for some reason. <laughs> I don't know if it's if that's justified that it feels like i even talk about in the book like uh what what would happen if basketball had a height limit uh and how much more talented the average player would be if the, so you couldn't be above six five or something yeah like even that. lower six okay. two because then the centers would be chosen among millions of men instead of dozens of men and they'd be better shooters they'd probably work harder they'd pass better they'd uh, leap higher, they'd be super unfair to the six five people, though. Yeah, right? I would. I mean, I, I also say I or don't. Or the bel- seven footers. I, I clarify that I <laughs> don't yeah, believe course. in bands of any sort, and I'm not a, a heightist or whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh You know that I don't think you know. you should be But there, there is something. Something feels a little wrong about one in seven, seven footers being in the NBA. I don't. know I don't know. It's, it seems like something. That's something like a. Against the spirit of sports, but I maybe it isn't. Maybe I mean because a lot of the things we select on otherwise, you know, are just as random. So baseball vision is incredibly important, and the average major league player has better than 20/20 vision because it's so important to see the spin on a ball. And soccer selects on endurance, which has an, a genetic component. So it's you know the fact that Messi can run around for that long. I'm sure is just as unfair as the fact that. Uh, Hakeem Olajuwon is seven feet tall, so the, you know the the, the it, no matter what you select on it it's it's not just necessarily, but it's, it's something about something about the height thing kind of maybe just it's just, just
0: gets well, you little but you know
1: anybody who's below average height, it's very easy for height things to get to them because <laughs> height, height offers so many advantages in sure. so many dimensions of life in the dating market in one's career. you know, a lot of people have reached out to me, they're like, now studies business. You think that if the average six footer in the NBA leaps so much higher than the average seven footer and runs so much faster and shoots better free throws and better handles pressure, what about the average five, eight CEO versus six, five CEO? There probably is a similar phenomenon there. Uh, so it, it may be
0: interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Maybe it's like a sour grapes of or Napoleon complex or something that, that may be bitter about that, the height thing. But it, it's, it feels, I don't know, it feels a little. Like, sports shouldn't be so dependent yeah. on one trait this way. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is more of a personal thing, I guess, and how anybody responds to the things you just said about the unfairness of height is going to be very highly specific to the person, you know. I'll be honest, I'm not bothered by it because I just feel so lucky to live in the era we live in now where the choice for what to do is so wide-ranging, and I think you're a great example, right? Like, the the idea that... You can do this fascinating intellectual work that in a way like you have these wonderful advantages of the combination of your own genetic advantages, your own environmental advantages that leads you to do this very interesting niche things that people find really interesting and that fascinates you crucially that I get to be a podcaster that didn't exist 10 years ago. You know what I mean? I totally before agree. before that, I was a blogger. And that didn't exist 10 years before I started doing that. I, I, it's amazing. I, like, I feel so lucky. So I can't play basketball, but I get to do this other cool <laughs> stuff. And that's okay. I you know? totally
1: agree with you. And I I think creators will find this interesting. There's such value in putting stuff out in the world and following your interest and passion. You said being a blogger. And when I was working on this book, I had no idea where it was going. You know, And there were definitely times where I was anxious. I'm like, am I... You know, you pointed out what is your job exactly. Like, I was making zero income while writing this book. Uh, And I live in New York City. You know, other people have more normal jobs and they're working. And most of my friends, you know, lawyers, bankers, they're kind of like going into an office and getting a steady paycheck. And I'm just like, I'm going to study NBA basketball. (laughs) (laughs) And how AI can help me learn about NBA basketball. And And it was really cool, but there was a lot of anxiety. And since this book came out, there've just been so many random things that have happened which happen in the age we live in that we live in such a connected world. So a friend of mine invited me to give a talk in Washington DC uh, at the American Enterprise Institute. I gave that talk. I met this guy Robert Clayton who's working on teaching data science to kids in inner city using sports as an example because he's like it's we make it so boring. It could be so exciting. He's also advocating for Muggsy Bogues to be in the Hall of Fame, so he like really loved my talk, and he said, you know, would you like to be involved in this? I said yes, and he like emailed five hundred people he knows to be like check out Seth's book. Uh, I'm having a phone call in a couple of days with Dean Oliver, this guy who's a god of basketball statistics, and he saw my talk and he really liked it. Uh, a couple of days, I'm meeting an assistant general manager for the Denver Nuggets who s- saw my talk and and really found it very interesting i don't know what a world i don't know i don't know right? where any of this is going but it is <laughs> well, so the point fun is and cool that, like, that's amazing. It's amazing so amazing
0: don't worry about the height thing and that yeah, you can't yeah, make yeah. the nba no, the I people agree. who are super tall like they can have it it's okay yeah. like you've got your own wonderful niche
1: yeah i you know. i agree with you <laughs> uh, No, i still would rather be an nba player <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna lie
0: <laughs> fair enough uh seth thanks so much this was super fun thanks so much for having me cardiff And that's our show for today. You can find links to Who Makes the NBA and Seth's other books in the show notes for today's episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bizarre Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, please leave us a review, or tell a friend. We love hearing from you. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at And we'll see you next episode.